and it's on the back page of the service sheet and, of course, also on the screen as well, I hope. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose use one part of your body than for the whole of your, your body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. locate them they sometimes I hope you've got one handy if you need one we are actually in that passage it was read Matthew 5 as we consider the seventh commandment today Um, we found in our series going through the ten commandments that we have turned uh, more than once to Jesus's teaching and particularly in the Sermon on the Mount for our understanding of them He was in debate, I suppose, you could say, um, as he did that sermon, with the Pharisees, with their do's and don'ts. They had suffered what's been called a hardening of the arteries, because they had all these oughts and do's and don'ts, a code of rigid rules and regulations, which they satisfied more or less, but which, which actually often left their sin unchallenged and unchanged. And according to Jesus, that's a distortion of the law that he had come to fulfill, to fill full with meaning and depth. Um, They caged the law in with do's and don'ts. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is actually to uncage the lion and let the law really pounce on our secret thoughts and motives and tear to pieces any ideas of our own goodness not just to leave us there, but actually to point the way to a deeper righteousness. I think as I've been pondering this commandment uh, over the course of um, the last week and more, uh, it seemed to me that we've, what we need to do repeatedly is not just define ourselves in, in the Christian church by what we're against, but by what we are for and the deeper righteousness that lies behind the law and which Jesus Christ can enable us to find and live out is very attractive and powerful and much needed in our world today. So Jesus is, is, is seeking to release the law to, get, to do a deep work in our lives rather than just giving a list of do's and don'ts that we think we can easily satisfy or not. We saw that last week in relation to the, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, Simply to stop short of the actual deed of murder, Jesus was saying, isn't the full intention of the law. It's perfectly possible to have no blood on our hands, but to have hearts dripping with guilt. So Jesus deepens the law there with regard to the sixth commandment. Not just murder, but slighting words, we saw. Not just words, in fact, 
but unexpressed anger, and indeed not just anger, but even causing someone else to be angry and then doing nothing about it. That's all covered in uh, the deeper exposure of that law. And it's deadly serious, says Jesus, and needs to be settled quickly. Then when it comes to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus reviews that, something similar is happening as well. Jesus is upholding the law and deepening its demands. So I want to try and lead us to deeper righteousness on this commandment by looking at it under two positive uh, headings, two positive bits of guidance from Jesus. The first is the need for self-control. You might think that sounds not very positive, but let me reread verses 27 to uh, 30 to start with. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. Better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. You've heard that it was said, starts Jesus, you shall not commit adultery. There was, in fact, I refreshed my memory on this this week, there was a translation in the 17th century, one of the old King James Version ones, where a typo crept in, and the word not got left out in the seventh commandment, just by accident. Well, let me just say, for the sake of clarity, Jesus has not come to abolish the seventh commandment. But once again, the Pharisees focus simply on the act itself, and Jesus is uncovering the inner attitude to which every one of us, I guess, in some way or other, has to plead guilty. Verse 28, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If we just left it at verse 28, uh, sorry, verse 27, I suppose it would be possible for somebody to stand up and have a pop at non-Christian society with its loose sexual morals, just as they wanted to do that. But of course, once Jesus adds verse 28, uh, we are all probably in the dock. Heart adultery is something that we're all probably guilty of. Not, of course, that sex is wrong, dirty, grubby, or bad, although Christians have often been misunderstood to be teaching that in the past or contributed to that misunderstanding in the past. In the third century, there was one church leader who taught that the Holy Spirit actually left the room when a husband and wife had sex. And I gather that in the Middle Ages, because of the sort of weekly anniversaries that there were, um, Eve of Chartres forbade sex on Thursdays, because, of course, of the ascension. On Fridays, because of Good Friday, because of the cross. On Saturdays, in honor of Mary. I don't quite know how that works, but uh, I just take it as read that that's right. On Sundays, you weren't allowed to, just so you could celebrate the resurrection. And on Mondays, out of respect for the dead. Presumably, Tuesdays and Wednesdays were, for many people, the highlight of the week. But no, that's not what the Bible teaches. Sex is not wrong. In its right place, and I think I need to restate that 
at the moment in, in our world, in, in its right place, the committed, lifelong partnership of heterosexual marriage. It's a beautiful gift from God. Sex is not wrong, nor is sexual attraction wrong. So when someone gorgeous walks into the room and you can't help but notice them, that is not in the first moment sin. That's just good eyesight. But can any of us honestly say we don't go beyond that? There's that moment in the Old Testament where King David saw the beautiful Bathsheba, and she was beautiful. But what happened next? The glance became a trance, and in no time at all, in that situation, lust had sidelined the person, really. Happens with us. Lust sidelines the person, and it's easily possible for our only thought to be their body and how we can gratify ourselves with it. So what's going on here in his teaching on the law. As before with murder, Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. And according to Jesus, our problem is not simply that we do evil things. It's that we ever have a heart to do them. So what he's saying is that self-control has got to replace self-gratification. And these are very strong words that follow, aren't they? Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So he's saying there, verse 29, that this is a disease which needs radical surgery. Not, of course, that we're literally to perform this operation. Because, of course, even that wouldn't go deep enough if you think about it. If I remove one eye, well, what about the other one? And if I were to blind myself completely, well, I know that I've still got plenty of film recorded in my head to run before my mind's eye anyway. So surely Jesus' point is, is, is more metaphorical, isn't it not? He's saying simply that to deal with temptation is going to feel like I am doing violence to myself. And especially, I suppose, in the area of our sexual identity. Sin's got so deeply into my personality in this area that to deal with it, Jesus is saying, will feel like agony. Now, don't be offended if you happen to be left-handed. I suppose that Jesus mentions the right hand to stand for the most essential limb in the body. So he's saying, look, it it may feel as if you're foregoing something you can't do without. But actually, says Jesus, it will be better than to give in to temptation and to end up in hell. I don't know how you would wish to apply this teaching in your own life, whether this is a a live issue for anybody here. I'm guessing just from the fact that it's in our Bibles, we are meant to be aware of it, even if we feel that lust like this is something from long in the past in our lives. I guess there may be other applications of it that you ought to be thinking through. But what this is saying is that next time we're tempted to lust, however that comes our way, uh, whether it's what we see on TV or on the internet or by what we touch, uh, giving in to lust, Jesus is saying, is like lighting a gunpowder trail, which, if it's left untracked, will burn all the way 
to hell. So he counsels us this need for self-control. And I think it would be remiss of me, I forgot to say this in the first service, just to mention the dangers of the mobile phone um, and to alert us to that, to pray for, if this is not a live issue for you, pray for those for whom mobile phones are such a part of their culture today that this is the route in to this area of temptation for them, the need for self-control. Jesus didn't quite say it, did you? If your mobile phone calls you to sin, chuck it away. It would be quite straightforward in one sense if he had said that. It'll feel like that. The mobile phone is almost an extension of our bodies, it feels like to us, doesn't it? So the need for self-control. Secondly, the need for self-commitment. And that's how I want to apply positively what Jesus says about divorce in verses 31 and 2. It's been said, let me get this right because I think the old version is going to let me down otherwise. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what he's saying there flew in the face of Jesus' contemporary culture. There was, he's quoting it, uh, an accepted view of divorce for a Jew to put too much salt in the soup was adequate grounds for divorce, amazingly. Just had to get the certificate and that was fine. So it flies in the face of his contemporary culture It flies in the face of contemporary culture today, what Jesus is saying. We've got no false divorce on our statute books. I gather from another part of the world, for the Pueblo Indians, the system is very straightforward there as well. A woman can divorce her husband simply by leaving his moccasins outside the front door. I suppose there would be scope for a bit of misunderstanding if he just happened to have smelly feet, but we we won't go there particularly. This is counter-cultural. So how are we to understand these verses? Well, I want to take it in a positive direction with encouragement to self-giving, self-commitment. You see, what Jesus is saying is less a comment on divorce than it is on marriage. To Jesus, the baseline assumption here and elsewhere is that the original marriage bond is indissoluble and therefore in the eyes of God a legal document saying we're divorced that somebody comes up with doesn't particularly change that Um, there was an interview once with the film star Al Pacino where somebody asked him why he hadn't married and he answered like this why have I never proposed in the past he pondered a bit I hate to say this he said but marriage is a state of mind and not a contract When I think about the law and marriage, I ask myself, when did the cops get involved? See what he's saying? A man and a woman come to an agreement. It's not legally binding. There's no need for the cops or anyone else to interfere in in that uh, in the future. Just a state of mind. So if I change my mind, if I want out, then I'm free to leave. Now that's Not what the Bible means by marriage at all. Marriage is a contract. It's a covenant. 
James Dobson is a writer that gets quite a hard time today, but I remember being very um, influenced and encouraged by his writings 20 years or so ago. And he, it seems to me, has this much more accurately when he quotes a letter sent by his father to his mother the day before his own wedding. This is what the dad said to James Dobson's mother. I want you to understand and be fully aware of my feelings concerning the marriage covenant which we're about to enter. I've been taught at my mother's knee and in conformity to the word of God that the marriage vows are inviolable and by entering into them I'm binding myself absolutely for life. Then he went on. The idea of estrangement from you through divorce will never at any time be permitted to enter my thinking. I'm not naive on this. On the contrary, I'm fully aware of the possibility, unlikely as it now appears, that mutual incompatibility or other unforeseen circumstances could result in extreme mental suffering. If such becomes the case, I'm resolved on my part to accept it as a consequence of the commitment I'm now making and to bear it, if necessary, to the end of our lives together. And James Dobson commented that it proved to be a strong marriage. So, without unpicking those verses particularly, what this is saying about the view of marriage that Jesus had is that marriage is a call to self-commitment. It will require self-denial and self-crucifixion for two sinful people to stay together. And I was glad for people that spelled that out to me when I was single. I'm single, actually, for quite a long time in life, until later on. If you're someone who's single, um, as you see couples looking longingly into each other's eyes, you easily feel a bit jealous at that point. I remember once before I was married, I was in a jacuzzi, and a very couply couple got in. And they were all over each other and having a great time. Now, in one sense, I don't begrudge that. I've already said sexual attraction is a good thing. Sex in the right place is a good thing. But it is probably helpful when couples don't carry on like that in public, Uh, particularly if there are single people looking on. Um, I need to remember that there is more to marriage than cuddling and canoodling. You've got to not have idealized views of it. Billy Graham says that to have a successful marriage, you need to have two very good forgivers because of course there's so much to forgive in all of us it's not all smiles and sweetness one of the things I found it hard to remember about um, the sort of going out stage when I had to give advice to students when they were going out is that going out is, is different from marriage going out you normally step back to safety after each time you meet. You go back to the peace and safety of your own home or your own digs, your own world. But in a marriage relationship, of course, there is no escape. We're bound to get close enough to expose each other's sin. And every time we've got to forgive each other, it will be costly. That's what lies behind Jesus' unpacking of the teaching about divorce. There's going to be self-giving and self-commitment, the easy route out often will be divorced, not without pain, of course, but it'll be an easier route than sticking it out in many cases. 
Now, there is more to say. Of course, that's true. This is only a couple of verses. It's true that some Bible-believing Christians think that Jesus mentions here an exception to the rule. That is, that when my partner commits adultery, that has broken the one flesh link with me. So it doesn't constitute adultery if I divorce, and then some would add remarry. And some would say that Paul adds another exception that hadn't occurred in Jesus' time later in 1 Corinthians. So when an unbelieving partner walks out, they would say divorce and possibly remarriage as well is permitted. But even if it's right to say there are those two exceptions... I think we still have to say it's clear that divorce is still only the lesser of two evils. And I'd want to say, insofar as it's up to me, I think in the vast majority of cases, a Christian shouldn't initiate proceedings. As far as it's up to me, I'm to be committed to my spouse till death us do part. And I'm not to do anything to damage my own or anyone else's marriage. Well, how do we apply this teaching about loyalty and self-commitment? I'm wary to go into too much detail here. I think of the range of situations we're in. We need to think and pray for God's help and God's grace for us. For those of us who are married, there ought to be a commitment to work at forgiving each other and staying together and given that often we're in positions in our families, wider families, um, modelling a marriage which is based on more than just romantic feelings uh, to a very confused world, so self-commitment. I guess that we are often uh, at our stage of life, uh, those of us who are my age and older, we're called on to give gentle advice and guidance what about what might we say to those who, who aren't married? Well, you ponder that. I would say, I think, don't rush into marriage lightly. That would be sound advice to give people. Not to, not to give the impression that marriage is awful. It's a great gift from God. I hope I've been clear about that. But not to rush in lightly to encourage people to be cautious. And if they are going out with someone, to be careful not to rush ahead of themselves physically as if they were all but married. Don't make promises with your bodies. Petting, we might say, that you aren't prepared to make with your lips verbally. And I realized, obviously, that this is amongst the hardest of the Bible's teaching for for people to accept today. I'm not uh, naive to the point where I don't know that. The whole subject, of course, is a, a source of deep personal sadness and pain to to many people in our world, including some who are here this morning. I don't want to make anybody who's divorced or remarried uh, feel wretched by just barging in recklessly. The Bible does not teach that divorce is the unforgivable sin. But I think the point for us to hold on to is that getting married is not like going through a revolving door. I fall in love, I go in, and then I can just come back out if I fall out of love again. What's the conclusion? Where are we coming in to land on this? Jesus' teaching about marriage is a, a call to a deeper righteousness than just no adultery. It's a call to self-control and to self-commitment. And if you think 
controlling the self and committing the self sounds like you're, you're boxing yourself in in an unhealthy way, uh, then remember that call to a, a better story. We're not defining the Christian faith just by what we're against. We're saying that within those self-imposed boundaries, really they are Christ-imposed boundaries, there are relationships with God that are wonderful and relationships with each other that are, are glorious. Great foundation for joy between a husband and wife, stability in families between the generations. Yes, there are standards which we all fall short of. There's no sense of the person in the pulpit being six feet or however above contradiction. We all fall short of these standards. And we need God to work in us. But wonderfully, that is possible. If we aim at the standards on our own, we'll be like a Christmas tree with a few sort of decorations attached externally. Decorative but hollow. The deeper righteousness that Jesus is after is like real fruit that grows in our lives organically from within. It can't just be tied on from the outside. And where you've asked God to work in your life like that, then something wonderful can happen. Even with there being uh, things in the past that have messed up in this whole area. Maybe as you hear his standards, you're actually worried. Why would God ever accept me? And I suppose in one sense you have to answer that. Why indeed? Why should he accept us? Well, the only guarantee is in the nature of God that he's the God. We started the service with those lovely promises. Never will I fail you. Never will I forsake you. He is a faithful, loving God. He loves us this much, doesn't he? He stretches out his arms for us in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross to say, sin can be forgiven. I can give you my spirit to live differently. He loves us and can be at work in our lives. But sin is serious. He's very, very clear in, in these verses. It has a penalty. It must be punished. The most loving person there ever was or will be is the one who gives us the sternest warnings of hell in the Bible. They're from the lips of Jesus, these warnings. How awful it must be if it really would be better to gouge out your eye or to chop off your hand than go to hell able-bodied and well. Sin is serious. It must be punished. It will be punished in hell. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that hell isn't the only place that sin is punished because on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin, even our sexual sin. Why did he do it? Well, because of his amazing, faithful, promise-keeping love. At the cross, when God laid on him all my bitter anger, all my lust, all my lies, those sins were punished so that I can relate to God again and know that I'll never be failed or forsaken by him. And when we are forgiven by him, then there is hope. Then there's hope for that deeper righteousness he calls us to, for the self-control and the self-commitment that really will bring beauty to our relationships and that Jesus, the great lover, points us to.
Let's pray for that work to be done in us. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We praise you, Father, for your wonderful faithfulness. That you make promises which you will keep at the cost of your own son, Jesus Christ, and his precious blood shed for us. How we thank you for that kind of love. We thank you for its power to reclaim and rebuild our own lives, to pay for our sins, to strengthen us in the marriages that uh, are represented here or in our families, to rebuild what's been broken and damaged. We pray for that mighty grace, uh, even in the face of these strong warnings. We thank you that Jesus loves us enough to speak in this kind of strong clarity that we'd never easily opt for ourselves but we thank you that he speaks as one who died for sinners we thank you for cleansing and pardon we thank you for the prospect of that deeper righteousness that he alone can give and we pray you would work it in us and in our church in our families in our nation for jesus sake we pray amen